Hello Sword People, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Tim Parks, who's a novelist, a non-fiction writer, and translator, and perhaps most importantly, from my perspective, he wrote a fantastic memoir on getting into meditation called Teach Us to Sit Still. Those of you that train with me know that meditation is one of the core parts of my practice, so it was a great opportunity to get Tim here on the show. So, without further ado, welcome Tim. Hello, good to be here. So just to orient everyone, whereabouts in the world are you and how did you get there? Well, I'm sitting right now uh, in Milan, just on the south side of the centre of the city, in, a, in an apartment, my apartment. I've been living here for about 10 years. I've been living in Italy for about 40 years, I suppose. <clears throat> how did I get here? I married an Italian woman. Um, we divorced some six six years ago. I can't remember exactly how long. Uh, I was in Verona for a long time, and then I was working at the university in Milan, and so I came to live here. That's that's where I am. Love it. Yeah, I've, I've visited Milan and Italy. Obviously, obviously, I go there whenever every chance I get. So I imagine your Italian is an awful lot better than mine, though. Well, I don't know um, what your Italian's like, do I? But yeah, I mean, I hope mine, after all these years, it would be somewhat scandalous if, um, if it wasn't very... I mean, I, I used to teach translation into Italian at postgraduate level to Italian students. Uh, right, okay. That's which pretty... wasn't probably as nerve-wracking as being in a sword fight, but uh, I was always very anxious that I would make mistakes. So, you know... Uh, a lot of concentration was put into learning how to how to not make too many mistakes. To yeah, I, I've only ever translated in the other direction. I, wow. it's, it's the 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 active use of a language, so creating the phrases, is much harder than just recognizing them when they occur. I think. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, a- active language is always more difficult than passive language. That's for sure. Um, have you ever? I mean, I know you've, you've written a book on, called Medici Money, which I used actually for part of my PhD work when I was looking at uh, pricing up manuscripts. Um, but have you done much work with medieval sources in Italian? No, no, I'd be lying if I said I'd done that. Um, I wrote that book called, called Medici Money. I mean, I'm going to use the Italian pronunciation because I, I just can't. Yes, yeah, <laughs> <one enough>. sure. Um, <laughs> I wrote Medici Money because I was invited to. It was a crazy situation. Um, an American publisher wrote to me saying they they wanted to produce some books about money uh, written by writers. I mean, an extraordinary idea that books would be written by writers. That is weird. Um, and, and I wrote back and said, you know, they, they said, why don't you write about the Medici Bank in the 15th century? And I said, you know, this is clearly a highly specialist field and, and, and it's crazy to ask somebody like me to do this. And and then I started, obviously, having turned down the job, I immediately started reading books about the Medici Bank. Sure. And I was I was fascinated that, that the key, for me, the key issue at stake, which was the relationship between money value and other systems of value, uh, ethical value, cultural aesthetic value. Uh, so that clash between those two systems was absolutely central to the history of the Medici Bank and, and indeed the Renaissance. 
So then I wrote back and said, maybe, maybe if, that, if that job's still up, I'll, <laughs> I'll have a shot at it. And I did, in fact, get used to, well, I mean, they're not really medieval manuscripts. It's kind of early Renaissance, isn't it? The, the, the 15th, 14th, sure. 15th century and the late 14th century. Uh, I, I did read some manuscripts, but frankly, the handwriting in that period is a nightmare. And so the texts I was reading were either printed texts or transcribed texts. I don't actually find the language of the period too difficult, but the, the handwriting mm. is, is impossible. Yeah, I found that um, when presenting an Italian friend who doesn't do swords with one of the manuscripts I work with, and he looked at it and he was like, I have no idea what that says. But when I read it aloud to him, it was like, uh -huh. oh, yeah, that's like, you know, stand there with your left foot forward, and when he comes to strike like this, do this, do that. Uh, okay, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, the handwriting is, can be a challenge. Sure. Yeah, I remember, I mean, I, I did spend some time looking at various handwriting archives and, and getting some sense of what had happened. And it's only as you get into the late 18th century that suddenly all the handwriting becomes, you know, legible to a modern eye. Uh, otherwise, you have to actually, you, you really have to work quite hard to learn some of the systems. I, I did get to the point where I could, I could read all the... Um, exchange notes and checks that the uh, Medici were sending back and forth to each other. But, but that was about as far as I really got on that. It, well, that's, it, wasn't, it wasn't really central to what I was doing. Sure, that, that's so pretty well. I mean, most of the work I'm dealing with are manuscripts which are intended to be sort of presented to someone. So they're usually written by a professional scribe. Uh -huh. And so they have a very consistent hand which may have some quirks to it. But usually, once you know what those quirks are, it's not that hard to figure out. We have more trouble with things like um, getting a scan that's at high enough resolution that you can really zoom in and see the ink strokes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, of course, sometimes there's damage to the, to the manuscripts. Um, so, so Medici Money was kind of um, like a, a, a detour in your, in your writing career then. Well, you know, my writing career has had so many apparent detours that, um, <clears throat> you know, that the Medici money came pretty soon after a book that I wrote that looks like it's a book about football called A Season with Verona. Um, but again, it's very much a book about a modern mental phenomenon and again about the relationship between money and other values. Because if you think about it, football is a classic example of, on the one hand, something that's evidently about money, uh, sure. and on the other hand, something that's evidently not about money for the fans. Um, but, but even to an extent, you know, for the simple joy of playing it and so on, if that exists for the professional players. And, and I think it does for some of them, not for all of them. So the, the funny thing when I started working on Medici money was, was the feeling of how this, this whole question of the scandal of money, the scandal that everything can be reduced to a, a monetary, a unitary value, you know, that you can say yeah. the prayer of a priest will cost you, you know, uh, one florin, a prostitute will cost you, uh, you know, uh, less, <laughs> no doubt less, and, so, and, and that you can actually compare, more, you can compare everything. I mean, that's the scandal of money. 
Um, well, it's a sort of foundation of modern economics, isn't it? The idea that everything, you can put a price on everything, like including life. They, there are ways that they do that by comparing how much course, people, money people will spend on life insurance. It's a big issue, obviously, at the moment in, in the pandemic situation we're, we're living through. Um, it, the, the point is that money makes all kinds of things possible because you can do that. And at the same time, there is something scandalous about feeling, uh, you know, what is the nature of the value that, that you can't put a monetary tag on uh, and so on. And so there, there'll always be tension there. And it, and it was very interesting seeing the kind of negotiation that went on in the, in the 15th century between the bankers and the church, uh, you know, over the issue of things like usury, um, that, that is lending money at an interest, um, the whole question of what it, what it meant to accumulate wealth inside a religious culture which whose 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 initial figure Jesus had preached poverty you know um, mm. and and really a lot of the a lot of the kind of compromises that were reached like you can spend money publicly on art uh, in the beginning religious art but then more and more after the neoplatonist movements in the mid-15th century, any art is seen as beautiful, is seen as good, morally good. And so although I've earned a lot of money, if I spend my money publicly on something good, and of course later it will be things like sponsoring sports or sponsoring, you know, parks or something, if I do that, I can kind of earn collective forgiveness for my, <laughs> for my position, you know? Um, we see billionaires doing that all the time now with the Bill Gates... Obviously, yeah. Work on Obviously. water and... But the interesting thing, too, is the way then, for example, for the Medici, the, the, the amount of money they spent on churches and so on became also a way of showing that they had good taste, of showing, uh, you, you know, that, that they were special people. So on the one hand, they were spending their money, but on the other hand, they were also collecting prestige. Um, as figures of a certain cultural level and so on. Uh, there's not quite so much of that around today, but, but uh, it, it's a fascinating negotiation. It's also fascinating on the side of the church that on the one hand, they're thinking, this is great, we've got this money coming into us, this is you know, consolidating our position, it's all for the glory of God, this beautiful building. And then there are other people saying, no, wait a minute, this is all about money. This is all about worldly things. This is all about, uh, and we don't want this at all. We don't want this money. Um, and so you get a kind of backlash, a Puritan backlash um, with Savonarola and, and uh, obviously then with the Protestant reform. Uh, so, I, you know, it's interesting this stuff is still going on today and in, in obviously the debate moves on, but, but basic issues stay the same. Yeah, it's, it's a, f a fundamental weirdness that we pay footballers more than we pay doctors, nurses and school teachers. Well, you know... <laughs> it doesn't make sense, really. You know, the, the point is, of course, of course it's a scandal and of course it's obvious why it happens, you know. Yeah. I mean... You, lots of people can be can be wonderful doctors, um, 
very few people can be Ronaldo, you know. Uh, because <laughs> yeah. We know that physical sport, uh, obviously, if you get a very special athlete with very special talents, well, uh, there's a certain amount of the same thing in the art world with people with special talents. You know, this is just all special marketing skills. Yeah, this is the logic of the logic of uh, money and entertainment in the modern world. It's a, it's a fairly recent phenomenon, though. Only only when you could start putting this stuff on TV and getting huge crowds and revenues. Like if you look at if you look at British league football before the Second War, people weren't getting paid very much. No, that's true. Ah, okay. Um, now, I actually called you up to talk about teachers sit still, but I very much enjoyed that little digression. <laughs> um, um, so, I've been meditating for a long time, and I came at it initially from sort of guided shamanic meditation, and then got into awareness of breathing, Buddhist style meditation, that sort of thing. And I've read your book. Teach us to sit still, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I've read it about three times now. Yeah. So, my, can you tell us how? I mean, I've read the book, but most of my um, listeners, despite the fact that I've mentioned it several times to them um, on my blog and at other places, probably haven't read it yet. Can you sort of summarize how you got into meditation and what it's done for you? Okay, so um, that book starts when I was around 50. Uh, I was juggling kind of three jobs and doing far too much and had three children and all kinds of stuff going on and living in two languages and hyper-stressed. I had begun to have over a couple of years a series of disturbing abdominal pains, all kinds of of issues. Um, I had... uh, uh, at that period, nobody had nobody had actually established the the syndrome, which which I later discovered I pretty much had, which was something called pelvic pain syndrome, where basically you've just got those muscles in your pelvic floor uh, have become so tense from sitting down over computers and generally worrying yourself and working yourself crazy that all the nerves that cross them, which are nerves from the bladder, nerves from the back, nerves from the genitals and stuff, just start sending pain messages, uh, kind of referred pain, so that you think you've got a problem more or less everywhere when when basically you've just got a problem of being, of having been super wired up and of having this, these muscles that are in difficulty. So... You know, this was a, it was a very miserable period because, of course, one constantly believes that one has something terribly serious. Um, finally, I found, I found online after many weary hours of, of reading of similar problems, I found somebody who, who was suggesting this line and who suggested one, one of the solutions they suggested was, was a form of what he called paradoxical relaxation, but basically it was a it was a basic form of meditation, of breathing meditation, and body scanning. And I tried this, and to my surprise, I began to get results doing this. Although I found it very very hard work at the beginning, you know. I mean, it was very interesting at the beginning. 
realizing that I had never sort of closed my eyes purposely to not go to sleep, as it were, you know? Right. I closed my eyes just, just to be there and to observe what it was like being there. And, and so I, an interesting thing happened was that I suddenly got terribly interested in it, um, which was already therapeutic, you know, because when, you, when sure. you've got a problem, you tend to get, you tend to get over-focused on the problem. Uh, and then I, I tried some shiatsu massage, uh, which was also wonderful, by the way. Uh, and the guy there said to me, you know, this breathing you're doing is basically meditation. Why don't you learn how to meditate properly? And uh, he suggested to me that I go to a Vipassana uh, meditation retreat. Now, I have to say in a parenthesis that I was brought up in a super religious, uh, evangelical, charismatic religion family. Uh, and I had a huge resistance to it anything remotely religious or so it took me it took about a year and a half for this guy to talk me into at least trying this out uh and again i was fascinated i mean i'm no doubt you and and, and probably most of the people listening will be familiar with these kind of retreats but basically one one's invited to meditate anything up to eight to ten hours a day um that's pretty extreme either sitting or walking the first ones I went to were all sitting. And, you know, to a large extent, it was just a discovery of how, how wild my mind was, really. Um, how difficult it was to calm it down and to invite it to just be still for a while. And how you can't sit still if your mind uh, isn't still. Um, so there's a... There's a whole kind of realization of, of, of the physical and mental link up that, that isn't sort of intellectual. I mean, you can read about it and say, yeah, that must be true. And, but, you know, until you've really sort of experienced it for hours and hours, and then you begin to learn how to negotiate that. So after that, I started going to meditation retreats. At first, I went maybe a couple of times a year and then maybe once a year now for many years I go on hopefully 10-day retreats because I think the 10 days is, is just so much better than, say, five days or seven days. What's the um, difference? You reach such an extraordinary, extraordinary state in 10 days. I would love to go for longer. Uh, and no doubt now that I'm getting older, it, it, the time will come when, when I do find the time <laughs> to do that. Um, and then when I'm not at a retreat... Uh, I meditate every morning for about 45 minutes. Um, I have the great good fortune that my, I was going to say my partner, but we just got married. So, oh, congratulations. Yeah, we got married in December in, in full lockdown, pretty much. Wow. Married in masks. Married <laughs> in masks. So um, she, uh, we got together Seven, seven or so years ago, and and she meditates uh, with me in the morning, uh, which is a wonderful thing. It's it's a wonderful thing to start the day uh, with with these forty five quiet minutes. Um, Absolutely. So, so that's pretty much the situation. I do notice that you know just meditating every day for forty five minutes, you don't get into the kind of you don't get into the kind of state that you can get into at the retreats, obviously. 
Sure. I mean, if you just, if your whole focus for 10 days of silence, because they're silent retreats, if your whole focus is on slowing everything down and just, just letting everything breathe and be and observing it very carefully for 10 days, you do reach um, quite a wonderful state of, of composure. Not always, sometimes, you know, if you, if you make the mistake of going to a retreat when you're in the middle of a divorce or a marital crisis, you know, it, it can uh, be yeah. absolute, you know, but at least if nothing else, it tells you what a bad state you're in. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nowhere to hide when you're sitting on your own for eight hours a day. You know, there's nowhere to hide at all. Yeah, I mean, just to put this in context, when I start people, when I, I'm teaching meditation for people who've never done it before, I start at six breaths, which takes about a minute, uh-huh. and then we build that up to about five minutes. And then, if I'm doing really well, if at the end of like five or six weeks, I've got them sitting down for fifteen to twenty minutes a day, uh-huh. and that's. Personally, I find that you know, for a quick fix, I can I can get something useful done in five minutes. But to really, I don't know, to to clear the mental decks, like an hour is about about the time. Because the first forty minutes is basically futzing around with like stuff yeah. going on, and then and then everything settles down and things clear out, and there's that lovely. It's well, like, like being in an airplane know, and breaking period, above the clouds. Sometimes, sometimes I do 45 minutes and never really get that. Yeah, uh, sure. But, but I think, you know, if I'm not particularly wired up, I'm with, I think experience is terribly important in meditation. Like you do learn more and more as the years go by. Uh, you know, after half an hour, I can, I can probably get into some kind of, uh, of reasonable uh, state and get rid of all the all the past. I do think, I think one thing needs to be said about, about meditation, that it seems to me absolutely crucial that one take a position on it, really. Uh, and this is a question of what you're meditating for. Right, okay. Be- because, you know, I mean, I got into this, what, it was probably about 13, 14 years ago, and obviously the mindfulness thing was just beginning, and, and then it became very big. Now it seems to be maybe less, so I don't know. But it seemed to me that there was this constant thing of that you were with mindfulness, that you were doing mindfulness in order to achieve something else, you know? Yeah, that's, that's and, not... And in that, in that sense, like in a hierarchical terms, it was a tool Right. With a goal beyond it, right? Yep. Um, and, of, and of course it was like that for me at the beginning in the sense that I, I was meditating to get healthy and yep. it never occurred to me that, you know, I thought, well, as soon as I've got healthy again, I'll stop, right? Like you stop taking the antibiotics. Yeah. Well, yeah. But then I began to realize that it was only when you really gave yourself to the thing uh, and you hierarchically in, inverted the situation that you actually got the result that you wanted in the first place. But you only got the result if you ceased to think of that as the key result, you know? Absolutely. So it, that, that's a very, a very curious aspect of meditation. And it, and it does make me very suspicious when, you know, uh, it gets presented, you know, if you meditate, you'll study better. Yeah, but the, the main thing is that you'll learn about meditation, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a phrasing of the 
uh, outcome over process uh, problem. And as with, with in sportsmanship training, which is you know, where I live, if you if you want a certain outcome, generally speaking, the best thing to do is to forget about that outcome altogether and just pay attention to the process and and involve yourself in the process. And the process is the point. And then these outcomes may or may not occur, and they're much more likely to occur if you've done that. But if yeah. you're focused on the outcome, you miss the process, and thus you never get the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think also that in this kind of conundrum is, is, is a, a kind of factor that doesn't seem to have been taken into account by a lot of those proposing mindfulness uh, uh, on a sort of routine level for huge numbers of people. Uh, because if huge numbers of people get into uh, meditation and meditative states, uh, you're going to see a greater and greater refusal of many of the goals that they were supposed to be in those states to achieve. Productivity uh, being a good one. Because, because, for example, getting into, like, imagine, I, I know that uh, the American army uses meditation to train, train people to prepare for directing cruise missiles and so on. Well, okay. you know, I deeply suspect that somebody who goes away on a Vipassana retreat and learning, learns how to meditate properly is probably not going to be eager to be directing cruise missiles, you know. Uh, but, right. but the same might be said of all, all kinds of other goals. So it. It's a very interesting thing because it's not uh, simply a tool. Um, right. Though, okay, for, again, for our purposes, one of the, uh, what's the best way to put it? It's, it's the thing you sell meditation with to martial artists, right? Absolutely. No, I right. can see that. But I, obviously, um, I brought this up because I yeah, can yeah. see where you are. On the other hand, it seems to me, why does somebody get into something like swordsmanship for example um i mean do uh, they really get into swordsmanship just because they want to win no not at all no, no, no. I, I can i can i can tell you i can tell you why most people get into swordsmanship because i recently ran a question to my newsletter list um about exactly that um and most people get into swords because at some impressionable age they see Zorro or Luke Skywalker <laughs> or somebody like that and they go I want that yeah, okay. and and so then when they when they get older and they get access to for example the work that I do or my colleagues and they realize you can actually like buy an actual proper sword and you can actually practice with that then they to get into it and it's not exactly what they originally want. I mean, I, I, I fixated on Luke Skywalker fairly young and I've never once done a backflip during a sword fight or indeed ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but you, you realize that the real thing is different to the fantasy, but it has all of the things about the fantasy that actually mattered. Right. And so yeah, I mean, I, I have I have students who've been training for years. I've been training myself one way or another for about thirty years, and it just gets better and better. Um, but again, if there's, if there's this whole obviously meditative side to many martial arts, right. as we know, which is then alas presented so comically in in things like the Ninja <laughs> Turtles and and so on and so forth. Yeah, 
But the Ninja Turtles get kids into sorts, so yeah, I think no, the Ninja no, Turtles I are can, great. I can know? see that. I can see that actually. It's rather jolly, yes. Yeah, and then they're not intended as fencing instruction. They're intended as as get kids like leaping around the sofa, waving cardboard tubes around, whacking their siblings. I suppose the wonderful is the thing is the wonderful thing is the amount of uh, the amount of contact between mind and body required. I mean, doing doing you know doing gymna- serious gymnastics or or, or sword fighting or, or fo- football even. Um, sure. It's, uh, it's just any high level school. Like sometimes I think, um, so, so you know, through all this uh, abysmal lockdown, we've been doing uh, online yoga stuff and online Pilates stuff, like everybody else. And so, you look at some of the people who are clearly dancers and clearly, uh, you just think, uh, that their experience of space and their bodies is must be totally different from mine. Just right. totally different. Yeah, I, I once went on a parkour um, weekend seminar and the guy teaching it, a guy called Dan Edwards, uh, when he walks down a street, he sees basically the same thing that a child sees looking at a playground with swings and slides and things. Oh. Because it's not just houses and fences and whatever. It's, oh, you know, you could get up there and he, he, he can bounce around the landscape in a way that is simply breathtaking. And I think that the, the real benefit to that is the ability, it's like, like an artist can see differently. This is an interesting thing. And this is a sure. thing that I've spent an awful lot of time thinking about. I, I, I wrote a book called... Uh, out out of my head, which is very much about this. I have it. Each of us, like the world for each of us is is to a large degree what we bring to it. Um, I mean, at a very banal level, the quality of our eyesight and hearing and so on and so forth. But a musician who comes to listen to a piece of music is hearing stuff that that I'm not hearing or who's who's looking at a, a musical score is... I mean, the, the score is actually a different experience for him than it is for me. And there's no real, as it were, score. There is his experience and there's my experience. I mean, you know, what the thing actually is when nobody's looking at it is, an, is another question. Uh, and certainly walking down the street, you know, if you walk down the street with, you know, a fashion expert or an artist mm. or, a, you know, this, or just an adolescent and yourself, the street's going to be a completely different place. So like yeah, you see, a, a, a lot of man is seeing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and a, a lot of sword people um, make period clothes, uh-huh. and my friends who sew, I can can tailor clothes. Uh-huh. When they're walking down the street, they are seeing details of clothing that, like, are just just. There's there's a whole world happening yeah. that I am completely oblivious to. Yeah, my 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 daughter was uh, who was an artist into design and clothes. Got you know, it's just amazing. You'll talk afterwards about people, and she'll say, "Yeah, that thing she was wearing on that." I didn't notice it at all. <laughs> but one of my most intense experiences of this one of, one of the other things that I've done most of my adult, adult life is whitewater kayaking. Oh wow. Um, you have to be really in the zone to do that. Well, it depends on the on the difficulty of the river. I did get into a period, uh, funnily enough, 
in my 50s when I was doing quite serious rivers in Austria. Uh, and one of the things you learn there is how completely a river changes when you begin to really, you know, understand rivers and be negotiating a river and depend on your, you know, you know your ability to really read it as you go down uh, if you're not going to have a very bad experience. So uh, it's just a completely different world. And you start taking a beginner down certain rivers and you realize that they're just not seeing half the stuff that's there, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, one of the wonderful things then about, say, about getting older is that you may lose a bit of, say, your flexibility jumping about with the sword. Uh but you, you can bring so much more to the world in terms of experience. You, you see it more clearly, uh, I think. Right. Well, we have a saying that um, youth and vigor are no match for old age and treachery. Ah. <laughs> yeah, obviously there's a cutoff point, isn't there? I mean, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have but, to I mean, be it's, it's normal. It's, the damn sword. Yeah, it, for, for martial arts instructors, I mean, for, for, for warriors, people actually going out there and killing people, Usually the optimum age is somewhere around 30. That's where they yeah. tend to hit their peak. But for martial arts instructors, it tends to be in their 60s. Optimum uh, you know, balance you can, between... You can see this in most sports. And, yeah. You know, any good football team will have a couple of really young guys who can move faster than everybody else when you need them to. But you, you need some really canny uh, 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds in the middle of the field... Uh, who actually kind of can read the game better than everybody else. Sure. And that only comes with practice. Um, so when I was uh, preparing for this interview, uh, I came across your book, Sex is Forbidden, a companion novel to your memoir. I've not actually read it yet because I, you know, I ordered it when I saw it and thought, but it hasn't arrived yet. So I've got to ask, what is it about? Yeah, this is, I mean, well, you know, I write novels. We've talked about that. Sure. Um, and, and in fact, one of the, if, if you looked at the subjects of my novels, uh, the subjects of my novels have been very much uh, the mind out of control, okay? Mm -hmm. The obsessive mind, uh, the person who's locked into, into an issue, which then, which then drives the narrative, you know? And, and novels need a story and they need to go somewhere. I had spent some years then going to these retreats and notice the tensions that different people were experiencing them. You know, they, people bring expectations to these things, especially if it's their first retreat and so on. Uh, some people use uh, retreats, uh, particularly the, the kind of community, the retreats that take place at communities to escape from the world, maybe for two or three years, just living there as a volunteer. Other people come to retreats to escape from, from, you know, a marital crisis or to resolve a marital crisis or to stop smoking or so. So what I was interested in was, was just like from a technical point of view, if you write a novel about a 10-day silent retreat... <laughs> How on earth do you have a plot? Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing is, the other thing is that the, the kind of retreats I went to were clearly of a, of a Buddhist inspiration. I mean, the nice thing about Buddhism is that they sort of don't bother proselytizing you, which is so different from, from the Christian community. But, um, but they were Buddhist retreats. And if you think about it, Buddhism is very much a, about an elimination of, 
of narrative and the idea of your life as a sort of narrative trajectory. Yeah. Now, Buddhism, Buddhism invites you to look at the present moment and live the present moment as it is for what it is and not as a step on the way to becoming prime minister or making a million dollars, you know? Uh, so, so it was very much, it was very much, it was partly a comedy because, because there are people there who are, who are, who are there for reasons which are probably not the right reasons, even, even though they're, they're not in any way bad people. Um, and there's a, there's a sort of comedy be, between the reasons why they're there and then the effect of, of these meditative hours upon you. Like, it was interesting when you were talking about teaching meditation, and I was thinking how useful that would have been for me to have somebody to teach me to do five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes. And instead, like my first impact was I go to a five day meditation retreat. You get up at four in the morning, you start meditating at 4.30, breakfast is at 6.30. Um, and you sit for eight hours a day. And of those hours, three of them, they invite you to sit without moving at all for the hour. Wow. I mean, nobody's going nobody's gonna to shout at you if you do move, but but there's that invitation and, and then the danger that it becomes sort of a competition with yourself, you know. Uh, so in that novel, you, you've got, you know, people coming into this situation, which can be, can be emotionally devastating. I, I remember myself being emotionally completely wiped out the first, uh, the first retreat. I, I remember going into a, a crisis of weeping for no reason that I could understand. Just, I mean, just you just suddenly find that you're weeping. You don't, you don't even really know why. No, you're not I, even yeah. happy, you know? Uh, so the, the novel's about that. It's, it's a kind of fun novel. Where the, at the center of the novel is a very young girl, uh, like in her 20s. So that's probably, I have, I'm supposed to say young woman now. Um, and... Uh, She's, she's come out of a, a, a very traumatic uh, relationship situation and she's sort of been hiding away in this retreat centre for, for six months. Um, but you, you get the feeling, you know, that she's really not. Uh, <laughs> she's really not uh, quite zen, uh, as it were, you know. And, uh, mm. uh, uh, it, so it, it was a fun book to write, um, and uh, occasionally people will write to me and say how much they enjoyed it. I notice that people who go to retreats have often read it. Uh, and, and find it, find it... Uh, <laughs> Helpful yeah. preparation, I expect. Well, in a way, yeah. I mean, in a way, yeah, hopefully. Uh, that's sure. not why I wrote it. I wrote it, I wrote it for fun. You know? sure. And because I'm... I'm very interested in this idea that one can... You know, what are the things that make us unhappy? It's usually that you've got some narrative that, you know, you want your children to get into this and that job. You want your marriage to go in this and that way. You want your career to go here or there. You want your books to sell this much or not. Uh, you know, and you have all these sort of narratives that you're keeping on. And, um, and obviously it's not going to happen or not on all fronts or very rare. The rarely. world doesn't follow your script, yeah. We, we have the same thing in fencing. It's the, the classic, um, okay, this, this is something that I have to teach my fencers when they get to a certain level, is that 
When you go into a fencing match, if you have a story about what you're doing, you're likely to fail. Because How? if you go, yeah, I'm going to faint like this. They're going to parry like that. I'm going to cut <laughs> around. What then happens is you do that faint and then they step around and stab you from the other side and you're left completely surprised <laughs> because they haven't followed your script. So instead, we replace that story script with a like a mantra set of instructions like, I will control their weapon and strike. I will control their weapon and strike. And so whatever you're doing, you're looking to control their weapon. And when you've got control of the weapon, then you strike. Because another very common problem is you get control of the weapon and that surprises you because it hasn't followed your internal expectations. And so you freeze instead of striking. So getting, getting fences to like get the storytelling part of their brain occupied with a story that isn't going to interfere with what they actually need to do. Oh. And then they can actually do the thing. And of course, with your opponent, you want to tell them a story, which is a complete lie and have <laughs> them believe it. Or if they're telling themselves a story, you let them have it, but then just write a different ending for them. Yeah. Well, it sounds fascinating. It also sounds like the kind of thing that, as soon as you get into it, you're going to start getting more interested in the experience than, than in the Absolutely. outcome of, yeah, I mean, which is obviously got to be good because you're not going to win everyone. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and in fact, it might be worse if you did, you know. <laughs> it'll, be, oh, it'll be so boring. You would, what would be the point? You might as well not show up. I often think with writing, um, and it took me a long time to, to kind of realize this, that uh, the unhappiest writers are the ones who were regularly successful from the beginning. Um, right. Because then they run into all kinds of trouble when... Uh, when their next book doesn't do so when, well. Or... When, when there's some kind of down to... Or, or simply when there's nowhere else to go, you know? Um, yeah. But those of us who had the luck uh, or otherwise to get turned down constantly for years and years and so on and so forth... Um, you know, when, when some success comes along, you say, hey, <laughs> sure, that's, uh, a, that's a pleasure. There, there's a wonderful book by a guy called Johan Harmenberg who won two Olympic gold medals in 1980 in fencing. Uh, and so he, he knows a thing or two about competition. And he says that a common response to winning an Olympic gold medal, you know, after the, a bit of euphoria, the common response after that is depression. Uh, because what no do you do now? Go. Yeah, you've done it. What do you do now? Huh. Yeah. So I, I guess the, it's the outcome over process thing again. So I mean, focus on the process back, then. Going back to the, going back to that book, that whole question then of what it means to live without being, uh, as it were, without succumbing to your own narratives. You know, staying totally flexible. Really, I mean. Obviously, you've got to have some kind of goal. Like, if you sit down to write a book, you know, you've yeah. got to want to finish the book and so on. But, but, but not become a sort of slave to it. You know, I've spent a, an awful long time. I suppose because, you know, one of the hardest masters in the world is your own ambition. You know, it, it's. Uh, sure. Yeah. You see all those people like McEnroe complaining about their father and 
how their father bossed them around and stuff. And you think, yeah, but it's even worse when you're bossing yourself around. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been I've been self-employed now for uh, 20 years and my boss is a dickhead who never gives me a raise or a day <laughs> off. It's like... Right, and, never stop working. Yeah. Um, okay, now, there's one, one thing I wanted to get to before we sort of come to time, and that is... Um, you have a book called Where I'm Reading From, and describing it, you wrote, and I'm going to quote you at you, yourself, which is kind of a rude thing to do to a writer, but just bear with me. The literary world is so full of piety and snobbism, and in general, a defensive need to describe everything we do as terribly important, central to the survival of Western culture, and so on. The experience of reading books, of putting them down before we finish them, of feeling that a book is very good, but nevertheless not really wanting to finish it, or again, feeling it is very bad, but devouring it. Okay, now, the martial arts I practice are all based on research from historical sources. So we're fundamentally reading books and then trying to figure out what the author intends us, intends the art to look like, and then we try and recreate that. Okay, so basically, historical sourcemanship is a an exercise in, in literary theory. So... Um, do you have any advice for us researchers on how we should read? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that the goal you describe is, is similar to the kind of reading I'm talking about. I mean, okay. let's, try and be, let's try and be quick on this. One of the things I've tried to do over the years, I, I had a space on the New York Review of Books Online for many years, is just to be completely honest about what reading's about and what we do when we read and so on, and not to keep pretending that we're involved in this terribly, terribly important cultural collective act of being good people and making the world better mm. and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I tried to talk about, about the complexity of reading experiences and the way books are different when different people bring different things to them and so on and so forth. Now, it seems to me that what, what you guys are doing uh, is, is rather different. You're looking at these old texts which are operating in an entirely different context from the world you're, you're moving in. Yep. Now, so the key thing, like, for example, when I translated, I translated Machiavelli, uh, when I worked on the, uh, on the Medici Money book, which was... Uh, you can't understand banking in the 15th century if you don't understand an enormous amount of other things about the 15th century. Sure. Okay. Uh, you can't understand Machiavelli and what he's saying unless you really know very deeply what was going on in Florence uh, in, the, in the 15th and early 16th centuries. So I would say to you guys when you're reading these books, is okay the text and what it says and its difficulties. But who are the guys who are, who are actually doing this? What is the world they're moving in when they're doing it? Why are they actually doing it, you know? Mm. Um, what do they feel they're gaining? Just, just context. Books are richer when you can bring context to them, you know? Any Absolutely. kind of context yeah. that makes the book live more and makes it speak more deeply, you know? Um, 
Which is why reading gets better as you get older, because one of the contexts you bring to any book is just your knowledge of life. You know, if you don't know anything about relationships between men and women, you know, Anna Karenina is not going to be such a great book. Uh, and you can't even argue with the book because you can't bring your own experience to it, you know? Uh, whereas, you know, with, with, with the kind of books you're reading, you've got on the one hand the context of your own knowledge of what it's like to hold that sword and to move like that, and you can say, well, why is he saying this? It doesn't feel like this at all, you know. Or, mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing is the context of the time. So, and, and that context is probably broader than you think. It's probably more than just knowing in what circumstances these people engaged in, in this activity. But, oh, sure. Right. Because there's a social well, component to it. That would be the only kind of professorial advice <laughs> that Tim Powers could offer to anybody. Is, uh, you know, in the end, it's like saying, in the end, it's like saying this, you want to read a book in French? Learn French, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, okay, obviously the translations are wonderful and, and we don't have time to learn loads of languages. But if you should crazily decide that you are going to... Uh, to get into this, uh, then you have to know the language. You know, if you find yeah. a book that's written in a language that nobody knows, and, and there is famously one, one, one text, uh, I've forgotten the name of the manuscript now, written in a language that nobody's ever understood. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Every now and then somebody says they've solved it and they turn out... Yeah, and they done. never have, yeah. yeah. The um, Voynich manuscript, isn't that's it? That's right, Voynich? the Voynich manuscript. Yeah. yeah, it was found by some Pole in 1910. It dates back to the 15th. The 16th century. Um, I mean, that book kind of doesn't actually exist, does it? I mean, there's no. a piece of paper with signs on it, but whatever it was, only will only happen when somebody finally. Uh, and yeah. obviously, somebody, somebody at the time, it would be a different experience for them. But so context is everything in reading, and context means means your experience and, and knowing things and, and just getting involved. Everything's yeah. better when you get involved in it more deeply. Very true. And, and there's yeah. always a cutoff point. I imagine in your sport, there's a cutoff point where young enthusiasts sort of get into it and then they have to decide whether they're going to really get into it. Absolutely. Uh, we have quite a high churn rate. Yeah. My daughters, by the way, this is very funny now because I hadn't even thought of this before our conversation, but my two daughters, particularly my older one, got into fencing when they were in their teens and they briefly got into this medieval dressed, dressed up fencing oh, yeah, yeah, in sure. Verona, in Verona, where they, they went to these sort of festivals where lots Tornado of... Tornado Signor Bianco, I've been there. Right. That's fantastic. Weaving very heavy swords. Um, <laughs> I'd forgotten about it. And then all of a sudden, my elder daughter sort of just... Just realize, wait a minute, either I'm going to have to invest, you know, very seriously, because otherwise this thing is just going to be a game. It's just going right. to be, but if I want to make it really live, I'm going to have to give to it. And, and that's yeah, I, always a tricky moment. Yeah, I, I don't have time for a proper job. <laughs> well, it's great when you can make your improper job proper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, now... Just to, to finish up, there's a question I ask most of my guests. Um, and, you know, answer it however you please. What is the best idea you've never acted on? 
You know, you, you, I mean, the, your listeners should know that you sent me some of these questions. So sure. I looked at this question and I thought, what on earth is this about? Okay. Why does a guy feel he needs to ask me this, this question? <laughs> like, is he inviting me to say that I regret not doing this, that or the other? No. I think the no. point is a good idea is, is an idea that I can do. Sure. And in that case, I do it. Uh, I can't think of a really good idea I've had that that I didn't think of because I don't even know if it's a good idea if nobody's done it. Uh, you only know if it's a good idea when it works. I mean, obviously, you know, I've had loads of ideas for books. Um, let me say on a, on a purely kind of practical level, uh, there were times when I could have been politically much more astute with publishers and with sucking up to the right people. I don't say sucking up's an unpleasant word. I mean, with flattering the right person at the right moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, those were, I sometimes regret that I wasn't a bit smarter about how I played a couple of, a couple of relationships with, with, with people that could, could have been useful, but, you know. Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's answered differently by everyone I ask it of. And, and some people interpret it as um like you know is there well, actually for many people they have a book they've never written a book but they have right. this idea for a book in the back of their head right that's a common one like that. i bet right and <laughs> others it's it's they haven't quite got the nerve up to start their own historical swordsmanship club that's oh. another quite quite common one but it's it's really interesting think... to see how it's interpreted I think it is an interesting thing. Um, like when we ask ourselves why we haven't done certain things. For example, why haven't I written a play? That's a very good I've, question. Why haven't you written a play? Why haven't I written a play? I've thought about plays. I had an, I had an interesting idea for a play just the other day. Um, uh, do you go to a lot of plays? I do when I can. <laughs> I do when, there's, when it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when, when and I'm fascinated stuck. by plays, also by films, but... But a play seems something that, that somebody like me, like I like something where, where it's going to be authorial and I'm going to be the guy at right. least writing the script. Like with, with films, I don't it want to be a... part of some, some multinational budget. Uh, yep. But, you know, so why haven't I done that? Um, I've, had, I've had some interesting ideas for plays. Uh, I've... I'm not sure if, if, if I really know how to write a play, but I've never actually done it. Um, I don't really know why. I think it's very easy to say, oh, I didn't have the courage to do that. Maybe, maybe there's just some instinct that, that tells me not to go there. <laughs> um, I, I yeah, don't know. fair enough. Maybe, I'll still, maybe I will try. As I said, I had a curious idea the other day. You know, so, well, uh, maybe, maybe you'll act on it. <laughs> and again actually a very common answer to that question is every good idea i have i act on it or it's not a good idea uh, end of well you know it's yeah. not that it's not a good idea it's just that you don't know whether it would have been a good idea yeah sure like, how many times have i acted on an idea thinking it was good and then it turns I mean, out terrible not. i mean you yeah, know, yeah yeah that happens less now because i'm probably because i just dropped the idea even before it's really got going but when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, even early 40s, I'd, 
kind of set out 15, 20 pages, and then I'd suddenly realize, no, this is, you know, you're setting this up just because it's an idea, but, and probably for somebody it might be a good idea, but, but your heart's not in this, because in the kind of writing I do, particularly the novels, there has to be an engagement of all of me. Like, yep. there has to be something at stake for me personally in what I'm writing about. I go like yeah. somebody, people, people send you an idea for a novel. Can you believe it? People do that. Do they? I, they do. They that, do. That just seems the a bit day, odd. So, just the other day, somebody sent me, and it wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> and I said, okay, so do it. You know, it's your idea. Yeah, yeah, you write it. For me, for me, it's just like a good idea. Like, I, if somebody said, why don't you go and see this movie? I'd say, okay, yeah, I'll go, I'll go and have a look at that. It seems interesting. But, but I'm not interested in investing, you know, 500 hours of my time in, <laughs> in doing it, you know? Yeah, sure. And I think that's true for most writers. I mean, I have maybe six or seven books that are, you know, there are maybe five, ten thousand words in an outline uh-huh. on my hard drive. Some of them have been there for a decade and they're probably just going to stay there forever because, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and others, you just start writing it and it's like, oh, right, okay, I can't read or anything else until I've got this. Yeah. You usually, I usually know after about, I usually know after about 30 pages, that point where a beginning yeah. has to move into a development, you know, it's very easy mm-hmm. to write beginning. When a, a beginning has to kind of develop and a story or, 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 or even a book like Teach Us to Still has to, has to sort of take on a, a certain dignity, a certain weight, that, then you know whether you're going to be able to do it or not. That's the time nice. to bail out. That's the time <laughs> to bail out. <laughs> well, that, that brings me very nicely to, um, like, we're at about time. So thank you very much for joining me today, Tim. It's been a delight talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. It's fun for me. Fun for me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tim Parks. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd especially like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their very kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to to submit your questions for future guests patreon.com forward slash the sword guy join us next week when i'll be talking to ruth goodman ruth goodman is the doyen of living history in britain and we discuss all sorts of things including reconstructed ovens from the mary rose shipwreck and how you can use wood ash to clean things and it's just a deep dive into the minutiae of daily life in uh, medieval and Tudor era Britain. So you do not want to miss that. It is great fun. So make sure you subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you rate it, that would be great, especially if you give it a very good rating. And if you have an extra minute, a review would also go a long way towards letting other people know the show is worth their time. So it really does help. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week.